life around me was gray. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't depressed, but everything, there was no vibrance to life. I, I just had a hard time understanding people. No, I had a hard time walking. Everything was gray. So it was kind of like you had dementia or symptoms of dementia, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I definitely did. And they were increasing. I was fortunate they didn't get really, really bad, but still not being able to write your name is pretty significant. Uh, yeah. The day after surgery, I was able to get up out of the bed and walk. Everything, looked like somebody just turned the lights on and it was mm. bright again. I could hear better. I could speak better. I was just really, really amazed. And that's one of the reasons I'm such an advocate for people with normal pressure or hydrocephalus. Welcome to Aging in Style with me, Lori Williams. I'm an optimist by nature, and I believe you can follow your dreams at any age. My grandmother's journey with dementia ignited a passion in me to work with seniors. I've spent the past 13 years learning about seniors and aging. In my mid-50s, I followed my own dream and founded my company, where I use my expertise to help seniors locate housing and resources. On this podcast, we cover all aspects of aging. Join us each week to meet senior living experts and inspirational seniors who are following their dreams. The fact is, we're all aging, so why not do it in style? Hi, welcome to today's episode of Aging in Style. So several months ago, I was at a networking meeting. There was a speaker there and his name is Gary Chafee and his story was incredible. And I've been wanting to have him on the podcast to talk about it because it's something working in senior living as long as I have, I had not heard of this. So what we're going to talk about is NPH or normal pressure hydrocephalus. And it looks like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but it can be a treatable form of dementia. So Gary actually experienced this himself, and now he is a spokesperson for NPH, and his story is just incredible. I'm going to have him tell it. But let me tell you a little bit about Gary. He is 75 years old. He is a very active retired senior. He just told me he feels 18, which is amazing, and I love that. He he was a U.S. Navy submarine veteran. He's been married for 56 years with three adult children, and he also had a long career in clinical laboratory science and allied healthcare. He is now um, working with the Hydrocephalus Association as a volunteer, and we'll get more into that. But welcome, Gary. I'm so glad you're here to tell your story. Well, thank you, Lori. I really think that my story, too, fits in with the aging with style uh, theme of, of your program. So you could stop me at any time for questions as I go, but I can just kind of explain where I'm at and how I got here. I want you to tell your story because it is so powerful. But can you tell us first, what is NPH? I'm really happy that you asked that at the beginning because very few people have ever heard of NPH. I know when we had that meeting that you attended, there was a lot of people in that room that are in healthcare. And I think there was only maybe one other person out of 25 that understood what NPH was. Uh, and I'll refer to it as normal pressure hydrocephalus, and then we'll scrap that term because that's just too much of a mouthful. <laughs> uh, so we'll go with NPH. And what NPH is, is a, it's a form of hydrocephalus that impacts usually people uh, age 60 and above, but it actually can hit people at any age. And what it is, it's an abnormal accumulation of spinal fluid in the, in the brain. If you think of your brain and kind of visualize it, uh, you know your brain's enclosed in this hard case called the skull. Well, with hydrocephalus and normal pressure hydrocephalus, what happens is the normal regulation of uh, spinal fluid production 
and elimination goes awry. And so what happens is all of a sudden you start to build up additional spinal fluid, and that spinal fluid is captured in these four reservoirs you have in your brain that are called ventricles. Now, normally those ventricles serve a good purpose of storing spinal fluid, which is used for cushioning the brain, providing nutrition to the brain. So ventricles are rather important. What happens is when that production of spinal fluid uh, goes awry, the fluid builds up, those ventricles enlarge, and as they enlarge, uh, they start expanding and putting pressure on different parts of the brain. It's called normal pressure hydrocephalus, but it's a little bit of a misnomer because during the course of a day, you will have fluctuations in your brain pressure. But the real damage is done by the increase in the size of the, the ventricles. When I first got diagnosed with it, and they did a CT scan to, uh, to show me, I looked at that cross-section of my brain and it looked more like a soup ball than it did uh, wow. a brain. So it's really kind of incredible, and you can start to see why uh, you'll develop symptoms along with it as those ventricles do enlarge. Okay. So that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Well, okay. So tell us your story, like what happened, you know, and how you, you figured out what was going on, kind of like from the beginning of the symptoms. Actually, I started off with probably earlier than most people develop uh, the hydrocephalus or find out about it. I really didn't have much in the way of symptoms. I went to a for an eye exam because I was having just a little bit of difficulty with my glasses, but I was only 34 at the time. So I uh, went in, the um, eye doctor was doing a field exam, you know, where you have to find all those little lights in there, mm-hmm. which we all hate. And he detected there was a problem there in uh, my peripheral vision. So he had me have a CT scan to find out uh, if I had a pituitary tumor, which was always an exciting thought. Hmm. So I went to the hospital, I had the CT scan, and then they discovered you know, I had this massive quantity of spinal fluid in my brain. Put me in the hospital for about three days to really evaluate, make sure that I didn't have tumors or anything else going on. So that, again, I was 34. I had three kids at the time. Uh, youngest one was about you know, two years old. And my oldest, 12 years old. So kind of an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Came out with uh, out of the hospital, though, and this is back in 1981. There wasn't a lot known about normal pressure hydrocephalus at the time. And so what they decided with me was they didn't find anything drastic going on. So they would just, they called it uh, communicating hydrocephalus and let's move on. And it was, uh, you know, just wait and see. That's what I did. I waited to see what would happen for 24 years. And uh, when I turned up just about 50, that's when the typical symptoms of normal pressure hydrocephalus really begin to hit. In terms of the, the symptoms of normal pressure hydrocephalus, uh, the doctors that know anything about it often refer to the, uh, the three W's. That's wet, wacky, and wobbly. And it goes, and that's the way they can remember, you know, to think about normal pressure hydrocephalus because urinary incontinence or frequency is, is a big problem. The gait gets really wacky. That's why it's confused with Parkinson's uh, very often because for me personally, my gait, I would freeze. Sometimes I'd be walking uh, across the airport because I traveled a lot at that time. And it'd be like my foot would stick to the ground. 
And then it would take me a second or so to realize, no, there's nothing there. I should be able to walk, and I would walk again. So that went on for a while. And then the, the wacky part was also starting to develop. I was working at the time, but I found myself uh, in a couple of situations where all of a sudden I didn't realize where I was at. I um, did that once, uh, once or twice in the car in very familiar territory uh, on my way home from someplace. And all of a sudden I realized I didn't know how to get home. And at age 50, that's kind of scary because the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So that, that happened a few times. And then it was even starting to happen when I would be traveling for work and I'd be in Philadelphia. I love downtown Philadelphia and walking around. I'd get a few blocks away from the hotel, and then I had a struggle to find out my way back. Other little things along uh, the cognition started to develop as well as where all of a sudden I had a difficult time in writing my name. Fortunately, I was able to, to maintain my job for, for quite a while, but then finally got bad enough where I had to go on uh, disability. Uh, and my company was great to, to you know, work with me on the disability. And then we decided to move from, I actually, I went to a doctor, a neurosurgeon up in the St. Louis area, and he did some testing, and he said, no, I don't think you're a candidate for a shunt. I don't like the, the benefit versus the risk. Not going to do it. I was kind of put off by that at first, but in retrospect, I realized that was a blessing for me because this was a neurosurgeon that really didn't have an interest in normal pressure hydrocephalus. And didn't understand it. Did he know that's what you had? Had he diagnosed you with it? Right. He had diagnosed it, but decided to, to do not, nothing about it. Okay. And so things were going downhill pretty quickly. We lived in St. Louis. We decided we'd move to Texas to be closer to family because I could actually envision a nursing home in my future. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit of a difficult time, but thank goodness we made that move because uh, I got a neurologist there who understood normal pressure hydrocephalus, immediately sent me over to a major teaching institution uh, for a neurosurgery consult there. I have now been with that group for 18 years, and uh, it, it's been an amazing transformation. I continued to work for a while, but then um, disability kicked in again, had to take off, and then they evaluated me for uh, surgery. And for normal pressure hydrocephalus, the typical surgery is putting in a shunt that goes from the center of your brain and then drains into my abdomen. And that was an exciting experience <laughs> to have them talk about doing that. So but, did they do that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but did they do that when you first went to the doctor here in Texas or did they treat you in another way before considering the shunt? Uh, no, they um, almost immediately did the workup for a shunt. And what the workup for the shunt in a group like where I was at involved me going into the hospital for three days and they put a, a drain in my spine and they could uh, do a controlled release of spinal fluid that way and evaluate me um, with neuropsychological testing. Physical therapist came in to evaluate the changes in my gait. And so between the neurosurgeons, neuropsychologists, physical therapists, and the nursing staff, they determined, yeah, I was definitely a candidate for the shunt, and then they scheduled the surgery. 
Kind of interesting, though, because during my stay at the hospital, one of the nurses mentioned to me that she didn't think I should have that surgery. Hmm. My background is in, as a medical technologist, and we're kind of nitpicking about going through the research and knowing those details. So when the surgeons came in and said that they wanted to do surgery the next day, I said, time out. I've got to go home. I've got to do some research to make sure that's the right path. And, that, and that's what I did. Pretty immediately, he said, yeah, that probably was stupid on my part because now I have a month to wait before I can have this. Oh, no. <laughs> well, is there a lot of risk involved or something? Why did the nurse think that you shouldn't have it done? I think the nurse actually came from England. Uh, and she had been over here, treatment over there was a little bit different. If they just go ahead and stick a shunt in without doing some of the pre-testing, make sure you're a good candidate. Yeah, there are a number of risks involved because they they are drilling a hole in your brain. Yeah. Um, yeah, the risks were there. And one way I was glad I did the research because when I did get to the hospital, I was totally prepared mm-hmm. uh, for the surgery. I had the surgery, and that would have been like January of 2001. I remember waking up, you know, I just envisioning going to the hospital and having brain surgery, and you're going to wake up and your head hurts and you've got a big old bandage all around your head. I woke up and essentially had a Band-Aid on my head. Oh, wow. Uh, it, was, it was pretty, pretty amazing that uh, and I had no pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a little bit of pain from post-surgery, but uh, very little. It was pretty much controlled just with some Tylenol. And so I was pretty amazed by that. That is amazing. I waited all this time. But the big thing about it was when I went into surgery, life around me was gray. Yeah, I mean... I wasn't depressed, but everything, there was no vibrance to life. I, I just had a hard time understanding people. I had a hard time walking. Everything was gray. So it was kind of like you had dementia or symptoms of dementia, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I definitely did. And they were increasing. I was fortunate they didn't get really, really bad, but still not being able to write your name is pretty significant. Uh, yeah. The day after surgery, I was able to get up out of the bed and walk. Everything looked like somebody just turned the lights on and it was mm. bright again. I could hear better. I could speak better. I was just really, really amazed. And that's one of the reasons I'm such an advocate for people with normal pressure or hydrocephalus. Going into this, I had a lot of things going for me because I had a background in healthcare. Uh, I knew a lot of the terminology. I knew the way we were around the hospital and things like that. So I really felt sorry for people that are going through this uh, diagnostics and the surgery and things like that when they don't have that kind of background. So I wanted to get myself in a position where I could offer some support. And that's what I've been doing now for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Are a lot of people misdiagnosed? Is it, you know, people don't, doctors don't always know about it or what do you find? Absolutely get misdiagnosed. Uh, mm-hmm. In my case, it went through a variety of diagnostic things. One, they would work me up for Parkinson's disease and then uh, Alzheimer's disease. Another time that I got confused and they even were starting to look at multiple myeloma and all these things. Mm. And every time they would make a misdiagnosis, that, that burnt up a lot of time and energy to, to go down that route of all the testing and stuff. So it happens quite frequently. The other thing that happens is it gets misdiagnosed or just as you're getting older, those things happen. Mm-hmm. Your nerve frequency happens. Your walking happens just with increased age. I'm here to tell you, don't believe that. Just flat, don't believe that or push back to, to make sure what else is going on. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good to know. So if someone is having some of these symptoms, like you said, the way the doctors talk about it, it's wet, wacky, and wobbly. So wobbly. if you're having urinary incontinence, some signs of dementia, and if your gait is off, if you're kind of wobbly when you walk, those would all be things that, I mean, it could mean Parkinson's, it could mean something else, but would you say, ask your doctor about NPH? Right. The, th- the theme I've been using lately is, uh, could it be? Just Because mm-hmm. that's pretty simple for everyone to remember. When you're looking at yourself, a loved one, one of your neighbors, your friends, and you start to see maybe they're uh, not quite as responsive to you as they were, you can see they're having trouble walking or they're... If they are walking, that's in a hurry to the bathroom, and they're in that age group of, you know, in the 60s usually, don't panic about it, but just in the back of your mind, if you would please just say, could it be NPH? Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing I'd want you to do. The second thing I would want people to do is once you recognize that, talk to the person about it, because you can help create that awareness so when they go to the doctor, they can ask that question of the doctor as well. Mm-hmm. Don't be surprised when you go to the doctor or your friend goes to the doctor and he says, no, that couldn't possibly be it because you're not old enough. Don't believe it. Because I, I've known people in their 30s that haven't, I know people in their 90s that uh, haven't have been treated successfully. So it's not too young and never too old uh, to have that uh, on there. The nice thing about it is that it is treatable. So if you've asked that question, they can usually just uh, do a CT scan, and that leads them in the right direction. If the ventricles aren't enlarged, then they go down another route and see what's going on. But the ventricles are enlarged. doesn't automatically mean it's NPH, but it increases the likelihood. And for me, I think that's kind of exciting. It's like rather than get diagnosed with uh, dementia, Alzheimer type of dementia or whatever, if I could be diagnosed with something that they can treat, I'm all for that. And I hope mm-hmm. that the listeners of the podcast will have that same feeling because it, it's amazing to me as I talk with doctors, the fact that they skip over that diagnosis when it is so easy. Now, in fairness to the doctors, technology has made it a lot easier for them. Ten years ago, people didn't routinely get brain CT scans like they do today. Uh, now, that's much more routine, so they're liable to pick that up. I'm excited because since I've been working with the Hydrocephalus Association and being a peer volunteer and, and also working with some Facebook support groups, you know, 10 years ago, if we got a request for somebody once or twice a month to be added to the group, that was something. Now it's five or six a day that I see. So the, the word is getting out there. Mm-hmm. We just need to increase that. Absolutely. And that to me is just, I mean, just beyond tragic to think that there are people out there who are diagnosed with dementia and they that's not what they have. They may have NPH, which is treatable. You know, that's just, that's horrifying to think of. Right now, the statistics show that uh, somewhere around 5% of the people that are uh, institutionalized for dementia actually have normal pressure hydrocephalus. I've got some case studies and things of people that have been treated that way, have been actually inpatient, or being treated at home with serious dementia, not being able to walk, 
finally somebody made the diagnosis. They got a shunt and after years of not walking, can now walk and can kind of carry on a normal routine. Wow. That's just amazing. Doctors that I, I see all kind of expect from me nowadays that I'm going to have a talk to them about normal pressure hydrocephalus. And I'm not talking when I talk to my neurosurgeon, I'm talking about if I visit a pediatrician with somebody else in the family, that guy's going to learn about normal pressure hydrocephalus. If I go to an ENT doctor, I have my cards and information, and then we have a discussion about it. So that they know, they almost kind of expect it. Now, okay, here comes Gary again. <laughs> you know, they don't forget it. Yeah, that's your mission and your purpose now. Okay, so the treatment, the only treatment is to have the shunt. Is that the only treatment available? It's the main one that's available. There okay. are uh, surgery, brain surgery is involved in either case. Uh, most of the time, at least in the United States, they will put in a, a shunt. Uh, nowadays, the shunt is programmable, which I always kid people about. Is like, you know, if I'm having a bad day, at least my brain is programmable, not so much for the other people. <laughs> so they can do something with that. And that involves putting a, a tube into the center of the brain, a, a valve in my skull, and then it runs down it within the body into my abdomen and drains. If I wasn't bald, then that probably wouldn't be much of a problem. And nobody would actually uh, really know that I had that there. There is another procedure that is gaining some popularity, and that's called a ETV. And that way, they don't put in any extra plumbing. But what they do is they drill a hole through your skull, and then they put a tube down in there. They go into the brain, and they put a hole in one of the ventricles to help it drain. That's usually reserved for people that their hydrocephalus has been caused by some type of um, bony structure or something that was obstructing the, the normal route. But increasingly, over the last couple of years, they're looking at that more as a possible option for NPH. And I do know a number of people that have had that, uh, and then maybe a year or two later, then they, they get their shunt. Mm-hmm. Do you have to have the shunt changed out ever, or is it one and you know and it's good, or does it does it have to be something that is um, replaced? They should hire me for quality control for shunts. I think because I I'm one of those few people that does have to have the shunt replaced more often than most. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now currently on shunt number seven, mm. so that means you know I've had seven brains or wow. Most people with normal pressure hydrocephalus usually get by with one or possibly two. More and more, the statistics started to say after about five years, people have a tendency maybe to need a new one. Like I said, I was an overachiever, so I last about three years. <laughs> Do you notice um, when it needs to be changed out? Do you just start having your symptoms come back or what happens? That's absolutely what happens. The, all of a sudden, the uh, symptoms will start coming back. Usually, it's gradual. Urinary frequency will increase, stumbling with the words, having a difficult time finding words, and some of those cognitive types of issues uh, come back. I've never had it come back, the cognitive issues, so bad as it was before my shunt, but they do come mm-hmm. back. And then my walking gets um, terrible. Those are the top three symptoms, but 
for me and for a number of other people, things that will happen to is speech will start being impaired. And for me, my hearing gets uh, impaired. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the last couple of shunts I've had actually hearing was one of my major issues that I was hoping it would get resolved. I went from being almost totally deaf about, eh, about five years ago to the day after surgery, being able to hear again. I actually wow. had to go to the audiologist. I had to turn down my hearing aids because my <laughs> hearing aids were up too high that uh, they're blowing my head off. So, <laughs> so that's what happens. And I tell people, you know, I, just, I don't get too concerned about it because when my shunt is working, I do what I can do every day and just enjoy life. In the back of my head, I know what the signs and symptoms are, and I know when it's time to uh, go in and get a consult for, for doing that. I tell people, too, I think for once in a while, I think the good Lord just likes to remind Gary who's boss <laughs> and that the value of my shunt, because when the shunt's not working, life becomes miserable again. And the day after they replace my shunt, the lights come back on, I can walk, talk, and all that. So. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because it, it does make you wonder, like people who have different forms of dementia, is that how life is for them? Like, great. Like you said, everything just seems great, you know, and then if you didn't have it, the lights are back on. So it does make you wonder, is that how people with other forms of dementia feel? Yeah, I've thought about that myself. It's like, you know, I know how fortunate I am that I bounce back. Yeah. But being that edge there of, of that kind of reality of what goes on. The people I, I know that do have other forms of dementia, seems like that's where they're at, where mm-hmm. you know, things kind of gray out. And then uh, one of the other things I know just with me, and it's a tip off for me, is when I no longer want to go out and uh, socialize or, or party because mm-hmm. I can no longer really keep up with the conversation. The brain just goes so slow that I'm way behind in the conversation. I've become uncomfortable. So then I stop going out. Mm-hmm. And then the like my neurosurgeon we kind of joke about that. He says, yeah, you become kind of isolated when, when you had the problem and you don't talk much. And then after surgery, we can't shut you up. So. <laughs> well, and that is definitely something we see with people with dementia is that they begin isolating. And that makes perfect sense because if you're sitting there and you can't keep up with the conversation, that has to be very uncomfortable. You would want to isolate in that situation. So, well, I, I'm so thankful to have you here sharing your story and I just, you know, I want to help you spread the message and get it out there because if we help just one person, I mean, that's, you know, one person whose life is completely different and Gary, you are a big volunteer with Hydrocephalus Association. You're also, you said you're going to be speaking at some events. So tell us about that. I was really excited that this year, the conference we're to have every two years well, I was going to be down in Austin, Texas, so it's a little bit closer for me to be able to travel to that. So I was really excited. But then they asked me to be a speaker on the group at the conference. And actually, I'll be a cross-generational type of uh, program that I'll be on. And it'll deal with thriving with uh, hydrocephalus. Uh, I, I have written a, a paper that's on the Hydrocephalus Association about thriving with NPH. Because my story there with thriving with NPH was once I had my surgery and I was, but I was still disabled and I was sitting on my patio in a rocking chair 
and I, anybody knows me as I'm not the rocking chair type. And so uh, it just dawned on me that I had to do something different. And so that was a story I wanted to tell people. Once that light went on that I knew I had, if I tried to live my life the way I had before, do all the same things I had been doing before, all I was doing was frustrating myself. Uh, because now, even though I'm, I'm much better with my shots, I still have some uh, cognitive issues that I have to deal with. So trying to, it was like going up against a brick wall, trying to, uh, to do some of those things. So once I realized that, then I picked up uh, a pencil, a piece of paper, and, and I've never really been a, an artist or draw or anything with like that. I took the time and I did that. And I, I think it was, I can remember, it was a rabbit that I drew. And I looked at that rabbit and I saw, oh, darn, it's a rabbit. <laughs> And then from there, it started, uh, I got enthused, started to do more, took a couple of classes. And to make the story a little bit shorter, now I paint. I've uh, mm-hmm. actually, one of the paintings I'm proud of is uh, a portrait of my neurosurgeon. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, for me, that was kind of exciting because mm-hmm. I was just telling somebody the other day, too. The other thing is that now... Where before I had my office wall with all my diplomas and certificates of achievement, they're all gone. That, that was my past life. Now I have my artwork and my wife's artwork up on the wall, and we just kind of enjoy life doing it that way. So mm-hmm. hopefully that's a message that you can get out as well, too. Sometimes you just have to you know, change it up. And yeah. for me, that worked out well. Yeah, you started a new chapter, and that's amazing. Did you give that portrait to your neurologist? He has seen the um, photo of it. Uh-huh. He chuckled a little bit because we both agree he was a lot younger when that photo was taken. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, how can people find out more about hydrocephalus? I know there's the association. Can you give us the website for that? And you also mentioned there's Facebook groups as well. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of resources that are now available for people with hydrocephalus that were not available when I first um, was diagnosed. Uh, the Hydrocephalus Association is probably the largest organization and probably in the world for dealing with all types of hydrocephalus. Uh, they do a lot with the research. They do a lot with uh, education, education of the community, education of physicians. Um, Their website was just reworked about a little over a year ago. Terrific amount of information that's on there. You can find that at Hydro Associate. Actually, it's H-Y-D-R-O-A-S-S-O-C dot org. Okay. We'll put it out there too. Right, Scott. Tremendous amount of information. But one of the things I would like to highlight on there was that uh, we do have, I am a peer volunteer. And so anybody in the country, whether they're a patient or a loved one, or anyone needs information about that, um, they can call the office. They will set you up with a peer volunteer. For normal pressure hydrocephalus, there's only a few of us in the country. So any given week, I probably have uh, two to three patients anywhere in the country that uh, walk through things and talk about it. It's helpful for me mm-hmm. because the more I can talk about it, it gets it off my chest. I realize I'm not alone. And if I can put myself in a position where I'm helping people, uh, it just makes my day a happier day. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully I have helped some people. 
Yeah, so I'm sure you excellent have. information there. There's also a, a physician directory on there. And the, we don't just automatically put doctors on there. They have to request to be added to the site. That tells us that they have an interest in the normal pressure hydrocephalus, gives all the information about their facility or how to contact them. So that's an excellent resource. But while we're talking about that, finding a, a physician to go to, I really want to make this very clear because there's really only a few centers within the United States that really do an outstanding job in treating normal pressure hydrocephalus. And again, that's my personal feeling, and that's just I've seen it time and time again. Virtually any neurosurgeon in the country can put a a shunt in, but you really need to have somebody that has the interest in normal pressure hydrocephalus and has the expertise in doing that shunt correctly and will provide the follow-up care. Typically, those are places that are um, large institutions teaching hospitals because they have more of the, uh, they see more patients in that category and they have the resources to handle it. Uh, So I go to UD Southwest, Johns Hopkins is another uh, big one, but if you could go to that uh, website, that can help. Okay, excellent. Well, I appreciate you so much being on the podcast and sharing your story and sharing the information about NPH so people know about it. And then I, I love that you have found a, a new purpose and found your art, but also the purpose of helping other people and getting the word out about NPH. So I just applaud you for that. We will put the information, the website, make that available to everyone. We'll have it on the web, on my website too, because it's so important for anyone out there who, even if it's just maybe a chance that it could be this, it's worth looking into, you know, rather than being diagnosed with a dementia here's something that's actually treatable. So thank you so much, Gary. Well, thank you for having me. And just for everyone, just remember those three little words, could it be? Could it be? Okay. I love that. We'll leave you with that. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you would like to find other episodes that we've done, you can just go to my website, which is lauriwilliams-seniorservices.com. And please share any of the episodes, especially this one, please share it with your friends and family. You never know who it may help. We'll see you next week. 